love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by co-host Ala Khan, and we're bringing you a conversation with Father Pedro Lopez, the pastor of Our Lady of Guadalupe Catholic Parish. You'll hear about his relationship to the ocean and how the Catholic Church has interplayed with indigenous peoples of North America over the last 500 years. We'll also hear about Father Pedro's passion for the sacrament of the Eucharist and how he has been shaped through beloved relationships over the course of his time as a priest. Ala and I really loved talking with Father Pedro, and we're sure that his kindness and his insights will make you feel right at home. I'm glad to be here today with my co-host, Ala Khan, and Father Pedro Lopez, who is the priest at Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish, our local Catholic church that's just a block off Milpas Street on Nopal and Montecito. First, I want to acknowledge the history of the land that we call Santa Barbara, which has been stewarded by the Chumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Chumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality and community. Father Pedro, can you share your preferred pronouns, how long you've lived in Santa Barbara, and what's something you love specifically about calling Santa Barbara home? I'm Father Pedro Lopez. I am a Roman Catholic priest. I'm pastor of Our Lady of Guadalupe Church here in Santa Barbara. It's a bilingual, bicultural community, Spanish and English speaking. The Spanish speaking are primarily from Mexico. There are a few other nationalities represented, but mostly Mexican-American or Mexican immigrants who have settled here. I am originally from Ventura, so I'm not unfamiliar with Santa Barbara, but way before I was uh, stationed here as pastor, I was very familiar with the city and with the county. It's a favorite place of mine that when not in Ventura, I would love to come up here and spend some time, visit friends, enjoy all that Santa Barbara has to offer. And those of you that are familiar with Santa Barbara know that there's quite a bit to enjoy here. What, 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 What are some of those things? Yeah. Go ahead, <laughs> oh, well, okay. I enjoy the ocean. I'm an avid fisherman. I also enjoy the beach. Uh, I love to uh, just hang out at the beach, fish from shore also. I enjoy the mountains and the trails, hiking, camping, all of that kind of stuff. And I also enjoy the events that Santa Barbara hosts at various times of the year. The fiestas, uh, most obviously, that's the biggest event of the of the whole year. But there's also the film festivals and other things like that. Also in the parishes and the churches, there are great celebrations. One of them, the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is very much a, a big item here every year, uh, being that she is the patroness of this parish. Mm-hmm. So those are the, the main things that I would would have enjoyed throughout my life, not just only the time that I've been here as pastor. Awesome. You mentioned the Lady of Guadalupe, and that is, from my understanding, a story that not necessarily all Roman Catholics would know much about. And I'm interested to hear, just seeing as the Catholic Church has looked like so many things over the last 2,000 years, as it's been picked up and embraced by many different cultures. And I'm 
really interested in how the Latin American Catholic Church has really come to to appreciate the divine mother in a sense and Mary I'm not sure how how you would describe that but yeah that there's a, the figure of our, our lady of guadalupe that's really central and I would love to hear a bit more about that Okay. Just to start with the term that you just used, the divine mother, we don't Mm. believe in that. That's not a part Mm. of our religion or even of our understanding of who Our Lady of Guadalupe is. Rather, it hinges on our belief as Christians in the role of Jesus Christ, in being the Savior of the world, and being the Son of God, and that Mary is the human mother of the Christ, the human mother of God's Son. Throughout the history of Christianity, there have been various ways of referring to her, all of them struggling with this mystery of how God and human can be joined together as one, and yet retain both their natures. And that's a really amazing part of this mystery of salvation, that God so loved the world, as you hear in John's Gospel, that he sent his Son. Well, in sending his son and in becoming human, it's so that all of humanity can be joined to God, so that all of humanity is saved by what God is doing through his son. Hmm. Mary is the one who accepts the invitation to make that happen in accepting to be the mother of Jesus Hmm. and in giving birth to the Son of God in being a mother to his son, that she embraces all of us in her love as a mother. And that is what is being celebrated in a very special way in the story of Guadalupe. In the understanding of the story of salvation through the Jewish people, it was something that they longed and hoped for for themselves because of their struggles with their covenant relationship with God. But in the coming of Jesus, as we Christians understand it, the saving event is not just for one people, but for all peoples. Hmm. And that that love embraces all of us as God's children, as God's sons and daughters, as we are joined to his son, Jesus Christ. So that in the story of Guadalupe, where you have the European peoples coming into these new lands that they have recently discovered, they bring with them their faith, their religion, but in a way that does not communicate the message of God's love. They Mm. try to impose their belief. They try to make others to be like them and to believe what they believe but it ends up being a hurtful process rather than one that embraces in love. In the first 10 years of their effort to evangelize the peoples of the Americas, it was a miserable failure. There were very few converts. In the first 10 years after the apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe, millions had converted to the faith because they saw in her that message of love. They saw in her that they were included in what God had done in sending his son. The story of Guadalupe happens 10 years after the fall of Mexico to Hernan Cortez. 
1531, to an indigenous, an indigenous man, Juan Diego, who is on his way to church to celebrate uh, the Eucharist with the community of believers, she appears to him as he is on his way there and commissions him to take a message to the bishop, the leader of that Christian community, and requests that a church be built on the site where she had appeared so that all people could come and enjoy and celebrate that gift of love that God had given to the world in sending his son. An interesting detail to the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe is that she appears as a woman who is pregnant, so that in coming to this place, in coming to these peoples, she is bringing her son with her. And that that mission that is given to him is expressed in a way that shows that they are included in what God is doing. And so this is a, a very powerful sign to the indigenous peoples, and they immediately take hold of it. And so that's what I was saying in the first 10 years, millions of converts came into the Christian Catholic faith because of that which was manifested in the person of Mary, whom is referred to as Guadalupe, which is a Hispanicization of the name that she gave when speaking to Juan Diego. It was a name that was difficult to pronounce, but it was uh, Hispanicized. The, there, there was already a Virgen de Guadalupe in Spain, and it sounded like that, and so that's how she came to be called Guadalupe. The, the, the indigenous name in Nahuatl, was uh, a lot different sounding, but it was as close as the uh, Spaniards could get to what it sounded like to them. So, so that's interesting. But the main point of, of this story is of how so many people are embraced in that love that God has for all people, and that they came to understand that in a way that they could not have been included in the efforts that the Spaniards were making because of their other actions that had brought so much suffering and pain. And so it, it's a moment in the history of the church and of Central and Latin America that raises the dignity of everyone. So that it's not about us and them, it's not conqueror and conquered, but it's about children of God, God's people, which means everybody. And so it's a beautiful story. And Juan Diego, he was he was not a, a priest. He was a, a layperson. Is that right? That is correct. Hmm. That's really beautiful. That the way that the message of the gospel was carried out by the Spanish was not understood and accepted, and was actually quite violent for the indigenous people. But that God made a way for His love to be known through the vessel of an indigenous person. Yeah. And that Mary appears as a mestizo woman, that if you look at the image, mm. she is neither Spanish nor indigenous, but a mix of the two, a blending of the races. Mm. So it's a coming together, it's a uniting, it's a communion of the peoples and of God with his people. Mm. That's beautiful. It is. It's, it's an amazing message and how God was able to do this through the person of Mary. And that that's the way that it's been 
since the telling of the story in the Gospels of who she is, that it's through her that people are brought to Christ and listen to him and allow his message to take root in their hearts. Mm. That is beautiful. I've always appreciated and loved the way that Catholicism uplifts the status of Mary and her importance in the story of Jesus, something that as a Muslim really resonates with me. We have a chapter in the Quran, our holy scripture, that is entitled Mary, and actually Jesus is never referred to in our scripture except as Jesus, son of Mary. Like that title is always associated with his name, so her importance is like very, very well known. You actually said something that really stood out to me about her accepting to be the mother of Jesus. Yes. So there is an idea that it's something that even if it's hard, because obviously being the virgin mother is not an easy task, but it's something that she took on as a service to God. And I feel like I see that theme of taking on difficult tasks and approaching things with the idea of being in service of God. And I'm wondering if you feel like there's any way that that concept has helped guide you in your pastoral care, influenced your leadership. Oh, very definitely. At times, being a priest has put us on pedestals that we are looked up to in many ways, and that we are thought to be better than the laity, that our prayers are more important or more powerful. That's never been a concept that was, in my mind or heart, the priest that I looked up to was because of their service to the people, was because of how they joined themselves to the community and embraced everyone and helped them in their need and helped them to better themselves, to become more of what God meant for them to be and to have as his sons and daughters, not only in spiritual ways, but in, in very material ways, caring for the poor, visiting the sick, counseling people who were struggling with the problems in their life, all of those kinds of things and fleshed the person of Jesus as he ministered to people, as he gave himself to care for those who came to him or whom he encountered along the way. The, the whole idea of priesthood for me was one of service, and that has continued to be what holds me in the priesthood. In previous years, as I was going through the seminary and in my early years as a priest, there were many who were leaving the priesthood because their image of priesthood had so radically changed after the Second Vatican Council, and their sense of purpose and the place that they had in the community had been changed by that council and by the mission that it proclaimed as being the mission of the church in the world today. A, a lot of those who had been ordained previously had a very different sense of that and understood themselves to be something other than what the church was now saying, this is what we need you to be for us. Some of my own classmates struggled with that and have left active ministry. I've been a priest for almost 40 years now, and I've seen a lot of changes in attitudes and in areas of ministry. And also I've struggled and suffered with a lot of the pain and the hurt that priests have caused in recent times. We have the terrible scandal of sexual abuse of minors. That's horrible. It, 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 it hurts deeply, and it challenges me personally how I am going to continue to make a connection and have concern for others in spite of what my brothers 
who did these wrongs that they have become an obstacle to me and to others who continue to minister because people look at us so differently. They look at us with questions, with concerns, with suspicion, and how to work beyond that, how to reestablish the trust, how to make a connection with people that shares that loving concern that a priest is supposed to bring into people's lives, the, the love of Christ. So that's something that has been very challenging, and yet the very people that have been hurt by my brothers are the people who embrace us and say, Father, it's okay. We love you because we know you love us, and we will move forward together. That's something that's very powerful that, again, through the laity, there is healing. So you have the story of Juan Diego, layman, that it's through him that Mary brings a message to the bishop. So the laity bring a message of love to us as much as we are sent to minister to them with love. And, and that's been a very a wonderful experience for me, and very encouraging and very uplifting. It, it's a very strong uh, support for me to continue in ministry and to move beyond some of these hurts that would stand in the way or impede making connections with people. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing out the importance of the theme of forgiveness. And obviously forgiveness is of utmost importance between the relationship between humans and God, but also looking at how we can then take that gift of forgiveness and extend it to those around us, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And especially a breakdown of, of trust within an institution as broad reaching as the Catholic Church is I can only imagine a daunting task for leaders, and I can just imagine how much of a gift it must feel like for, for you and for other priests to, to have the laity, like you said, being the ones to extend that forgiveness and say, we're still a family. There's a lot of things that certainly are not okay, and yet we're a community when we're moving forward. Yes, very much so. You've spoken a, a bit about your own journey of entering the priesthood, and I'm interested in hearing when you first felt that call on your life and what that process looked like? I guess that started way back in grammar school. I had always been close to the church and been a part of the activity of the church. I had been an altar server. My parents and family had been very faithful Catholics. And so it was very much in my heart and a part of my life to be a practicing Catholic. And I mentioned, too, that uh, I had looked up to a number of priests and their example, their ministry. And I think that is probably what influenced me most in bringing me to consider the possibility of someday becoming a priest. When I began to take action on that, I accepted an invitation from one of my classmates whose brother was a member of the Salesian Order. And he was not a priest, he was a brother. And he invited a number of members of our class and of those in the class ahead of us. I was in seventh grade at the time. So seventh and eighth graders were invited on this retreat and it was up in the mountains. It was during the winter. So it was my first experience of going to the snow. So I was elated. I, I was really <laughs> looking forward to that. But while there, there were a number of the Salesian brothers, including my classmate's brother, 
who spoke to us about their life, about their ministry, about how they had heard God calling them. And in going on that retreat, it helped me to understand that God could be speaking to me and saying, I want you to enter into this life. And that's when I first began to give serious consideration to that. Later on, as I got into eighth grade, we were given an opportunity to go on another retreat to the minor seminary in San Fernando. And in the biography that you asked me to prepare for you, I indicated there that I went to Our Lady Queen of Angels minor seminary. So after attending the retreat that they presented, I thought, wow, here is a stepping stone that I can use to begin to make this happen. And I made the decision to apply to the minor seminary. I was accepted and entered as a freshman in 1969. And there were over 100 of us. I believe there were like 110 of us in the freshman class, which by today's standards, that's considered a huge class. Because in the later years of the minor seminary, there were only maybe 10, 15 guys that would enter at a time. So we were a, a pretty large group. But even then... The statistics were not very good to indicate that just because you entered the seminary, you would become a priest. It was only one in 10 who would make it all the way through. And as you would have it, I was that one. (laughs) So from that original class, I was the only one to make it all the way through the seminary. Later on, there were five others of my classmates who ended up becoming priests, but after leaving the seminary, spending some time in other careers, and then coming back and continuing through to ordination. So my call came through that example and witness of the parish priest that I knew, and then in going into the minor seminary and there further discerning what God was saying to me. That discernment was something that it wasn't a simple path. When I was a senior, I was given a scholarship that allowed me to attend any college that I wanted in the state, all paid for. And so it's like, wow, I could become anything I want. (laughs) I could choose any career path I want. And so further discernment. But I did decide to continue on through the seminary system and continued on to ordination. So I went to St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, did my undergraduate work there, and then continued on to the graduate work of the theologate, and was ordained in 1981. I get the sense that you really enjoy your position in the community. And I'm interested to hear maybe one or two things that you particularly love about being a priest, whether it be some kind of daily practice or a a regular way that you interact with the community, an event. Well, for me, every day, what I look forward to and really enjoy for myself and in my ministry to the community, to the church, is the celebration of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. It's there that I am priest for everyone, and that I am also taken up into the presence of God in communion with Jesus Christ, and can celebrate what God has done to transform our lives, to bless us with his love. And so, whether it's early in the morning or in the later afternoon or whatever time of day it is, that's the highlight of the day. And to see the people come together and to get to know these people by name, to know their stories, to include them in the intentions of the Mass, 
What are we praying for? What do we ask God to do for us? These are the people that are coming to God and asking his help, his blessing, and that I am there to bring that about in what I am given to do as priest for them. So that, that, that's the highlight of my day. I mentioned in knowing the stories of these people. That's one of the things that I'm very privileged to be able to be a part of, is to enter into their stories in, in the moments of celebration of life, in the moments of their struggles, visiting them when they are sick, counseling them as they struggle with the difficulties of their lives, being there to listen to them as they come to ask God's forgiveness when I'm hearing confessions, and to share with them that, that mercy, that love of Christ as I give them absolution. It's Christ who is forgiving, but he's using me as that instrument to help them experience that, to help them know that it's real and that they are embraced by him in this moment of grace. So the celebration of that love in whatever way is possible to celebrate it, whether it's in the sacraments or in personal ministry, is, is a, something that I look forward to and I enjoy very much. At times it's challenging because you have to really listen to the hearts of the people. Sometimes their words can be very angry because of the hurt or the resentment. Sometimes they are full of despair because they don't know what else to do. And you make suggestions or offer possible solutions. Oh, no, I, I did that, Father. I've done that. I've been there. Okay, now what? <laughs> and inviting them to pray that if I have not been able to offer a solution or a way through whatever is happening, that perhaps in our praying together, God will provide the solution. God will be the answer in some way to that struggle, to that concern. So being that person that can mediate that, that can be there for them, to make that connection, that's something very, very amazing and something that I very much celebrate personally, that what a blessing it is to me. I love that framework you had of you enter into people's stories, you're with them and you're ministering to them at all of the most important moments of their life, which I, there's so many, but from birth all the way to death. And I saw that you actually do hospice work. And you also yes. mentioned the importance of taking care of and visiting the poor and sick. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to what it's like to work in hospice. I, I hear a little bit about it because my father is actually the person in Santa Barbara who does the hospice care for the Muslim community. So I'm wondering what that process looks like for you. Well, it begins with an understanding that death is not the end of life. And helping people to prepare for that moment as a step along the journey of their life and to be with them so that they understand and realize that they don't have to take that step alone. Reminding them that as Christians, as Catholics, that actually the one that we believe in and look to as our Savior took that step ahead of us. And in coming back in his resurrection, joins himself to us so that he can lead the way into that new life that is his, into the fullness of that life and into the enjoyment of his father's kingdom, that a place has been prepared for us in that kingdom. 
and that we make that journey with his help. That final step is not made alone and that we can call on him and that whatever the struggles are as we go through this moment, that we can rely on him to be with us, that he is not going to abandon us because we are angry or upset or losing hope or whatever it is that is afflicting the one who is sick, that he is there with us and for us, that he is holding us, and that even though we may struggle to free ourselves of that embrace because we may not even want to believe in him anymore, we are so upset with God because we have become ill or because of the tragedy that is befalling us. Even then, God is still there for us. And I think more than anything, when the person comes to realize that, they can find peace and be at peace with whatever they are being called to on this journey. I, th I think that's a, the most important thing that I could share with them is to help them to be at peace with this moment and to take that step in faith, trusting in their God. I appreciate how much room there is for the fullness of the human experience in the way that you speak about your relationship with your parishioners. And a lot of times it seems like the general concept of religion gets a kind of a bad rap as being something that's just very unfeeling. It's unemotional. It's just kind of something you do. But obviously behind a lot of the rituals that are very dear to us, there's such a range of emotions. And we can see that all throughout the Bible, even as we look at, you know, particularly the Psalms and see the psalmist in, in anger as well as in great joy. And I just really appreciate how I imagine you've grown in over the course of your of your ministry, but just being ready to receive anyone, no matter where they're at, because that is the posture of, of God. Yeah, you mentioned the Psalms, and both for the Jewish people and for Christians, the Psalms are at the heart of our prayer. It was the public prayer, it was the liturgical prayer of the Jewish community, and it became the liturgical prayer of the Christian community as well through the monks. It was the monks who took that on in order to fill their day and dedicate the day to the Lord, that they would recite the Psalter, the 150 Psalms, spread out through a week. And so that whatever the day held, that that day be enlightened in the power of God's love, in, in the faith placed in that God, that all of the different things that we experience and that fill our days are touched by that, by that God and by his love. And so the Psalms are, are a very powerful part of, of prayer for both the Christian community and the Jewish community, and that we can express ourselves freely to our God as you said, all of the emotions are found there. Anger and frustration and hopelessness and sadness, as well as the joy and the excitement and the gladness for the good things that uh, happen in, in our lives. So all of that is found there. It's, it's, it's a really wonderful thing. And that true religion has to include all of that. And so going back to some of the remarks that I made earlier on about the mystery of the incarnation of God becoming human and bringing together those two natures, 
that God embraces the whole of our humanity. So all that we are, and if it doesn't include all of our emotions, then it, that wouldn't be true. But because it is true, then it reaches into the depths of our being, all that we are, everything that happens to us. And that's the great joy of what God did in sending his son to be our savior. I'm curious as to how your position in the priesthood has been a, a blessing to your life and to hear how, how God has transformed you throughout your journey as a priest. Well, I made reference to how entering into people's stories that I felt so privileged, not only privileged, but blessed. The strongest connections of friendship that I have is with those people that have allowed me to share those moments with them where they most needed someone to make a connection, someone to help them to find the presence of God and how the power of God touched their lives and that it opened us up to each other as well, to see in each other how God makes himself present, how God makes himself available, that it's not only that I was there to help them in that way, but that God was using them to help me in that moment. And many times not even understanding or realizing that I needed that person in that way, that God put them there for me as much as he put me there for them. And the deepest friendships that I have are through that ministry, that connection with people in the community. And we have Facebook and other, at first I didn't really have much to do with any of the social media. It was a great way to keep in touch with people that were a long distance away. And at first it was just to share a few little tidbits. And then people began to discover that I had a Facebook page. And so then they started asking me to, to friend them. And so I started making those connections and I discovered along the way that people from throughout my ministry for the years of ministry had found me or I had found them and that we were making connections there. And I began to realize the strands of friendship, how far they had stretched and how long they were in uh, holding us together. And that even though maybe some years had passed since last we'd seen each other, now that we could make this connection, we could renew that friendship and it continued it and moved it forward. So in terms of modern technology and social media, it helped me also to see how deep and how strong those connections have been for me and for others. Just as an example, yesterday I did a Zoom meeting that I was invited, or I didn't do it, but I, was, I joined in a Zoom meeting that was set up for people who were praying the rosary. And the rosary was being prayed for a number of individuals who had died from covid and all of these families knew each other and wanted to come together to pray. And with the protocols and the limitations for social gatherings, they hadn't been able to do this in the traditional way of gathering in someone's home or gathering at the church. And so they set up this Zoom meeting. And they had reached out to me, wanting to include me in that meeting. And that, so that connection was there and was made in concern for uh, one another and for those who had been uh, infected by, by the virus and who had lost their lives because of it. And so that we could pray and support one another in, in this time. So that, that, that was an amazing thing that they would think of 
asking me to come in, even though I'm not a part of their community anymore. I'm I love that you keep bringing up the importance of stories and the importance of human connection and the way that stories connect us. I myself am actually a filmmaker and community organizer. Uh, and I actually, and I've been doing um, over the last couple of years, a lot of work on the U.S.-Mexico border, telling the stories of asylum seekers and families that have been separated. And a lot of my work is specifically bilingual. And I was wondering with English and Spanish, and I was wondering how it is that it is like your ministry is unique in that it serves a bilingual community in a community that is heavily either immigrant or children of immigrants and how that influences the community. Well, I wouldn't call it unique, especially not in Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe not unique in Southern California, but maybe unique compared to some of the other white churches in Santa Barbara. Coming from immigrants, my brothers and I are first generation American citizens. My parents came from Mexico and we were brought up in their culture. Our first language was Spanish. I didn't learn English until I was getting ready to go to kindergarten so that I could communicate with my classmates in kindergarten. And so I had a crash course. My half-brother and a couple of neighbors kind of helped me through that. And I was very appreciative uh, to them for that. But we never lost our connection to our Mexican heritage, to our Mexican culture. And I remember some of my classmates kiddingly saying, hey, super Mex, <laughs> because I was so proud of my heritage, of my culture. And uh, a number of others had lost a lot of what that was in their lives because of the social pressures in which we grew up, that many people were not allowed to speak Spanish either in their homes or at school uh, or at work. They had to learn English. And because of that, lost the connection with their roots. But uh, my parents were very insistent that we always hold on to that. And they did all that they could to help us to develop that. Uh, one of the things that I'm most grateful to my mom for is that she took a lot of time to help me to learn to read Spanish as a child. And because of that, by the time I got into high school and college, I was reading Spanish literature, not just English works of literature, but the works of Spanish authors in Spanish. And that made a big difference in my sense of self, in my sense of worth, and in the importance of the culture and of the heritage of Spanish-speaking peoples. And so that I try to share that with others and to help them to appreciate that as best they can in what they bring to our society, in what they bring to our country, that they should not feel less than because they are immigrants, that they have a lot to bring and that they are enriching to our country in who they are and what they bring to us. And that, that's very important because if you don't see yourself in that way, if you see yourself as an intruder, as someone who is imposing themselves on others, then you're always going to feel small. You're going to feel weak. And it shouldn't be that way because, again, there's so much that the Spanish culture brings to the world. And by Spanish culture, and it's not um, just one culture. It's the many diversities of cultures and of nations and of peoples, e even within Mexico. 
every state, every region has something that is different and, and special and particular. And to even group Mexican people as being mo monocultural, no, there's a diversity of cultures even there. You, there was mention made earlier of the indigenous peoples. Well, there are indigenous peoples in Mexico as well. And so what they bring to us and their history and their heritage, when we were speaking of Our Lady of Guadalupe, she didn't appear to a Spaniard. She appeared to an Aztec Indian, an indigenous man who had converted to Christianity. And it was an image that they could relate to and identify with that brought them into faith as Christians. And so, again, just looking at that, how God uses that, okay? So why would we look down on it or poo-poo it or it's not important? Oh, to the contrary. Culture is so important and that we enrich one another with what we bring, with what we share with each other, with one another. So yeah, that's, that's very important. And having grown up here in the, in the United States and Southern California, I'm influenced by the culture of this area, of being a Southern Californian, all that that is about. I mean, I mentioned loving to go to the beach and stuff, okay? I'm not a surfer dude, but certainly I, am, I appreciate the waves and the ocean and all of that. And as I was growing up, surfer music was the Beach Boys and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. That was very much a part of Southern California. And it had its influence on me and on my brothers and on others. And now as I look at, I was recently looking on some images of some of the merchants here in uh, California, in, in Santa Barbara rather, and uh, this one guy who has a surf shop, he's Hispanic. That's not your traditional surfer dude, blonde hair, blue eyes. No, this is a Hispanic who has his surf shop. And so there's a cross-cultural influence there and of how we come together and can enjoy one another in the best ways rather than finding ourselves as being opponents or being contrary or despising someone because of their differences. You know, we, we can be a blessing to one another. I keep smiling and nodding at you because everything you're saying is resonating so deeply. Everything you're saying about the danger of seeing people as monolithic and the importance of understanding the diversity and the culture and like the beauty in that culture that everyone brings is precisely why conversations just like this and storytelling are so important. And it actually reminds me of one of my favorite verses from the Quran, which is definitely, I think, my life's mission statement too, which is we have made you into nations and tribes to know one another, that God created us in our diversity for a reason and that we nurture our own spirituality and our own relationship with God, but also benefit each other by learning about each other. And I think growing up, I'm also a first generation American child of Arab immigrants, but so much of my personality and the way I was raised is very heavily influenced by the community that I was raised in, which is Santa Barbara. And the Mexican and Latino community has been like a huge asset in just the way I have been raised and cultured. And I'm very grateful to have been raised around such a beautiful culture. Yeah. So thank you for having this conversation with us. Oh, it's great to have this conversation with you as well. Yeah. Yeah. So much of, of what we've covered here is, is so much of what the human family 
podcast and the Human Family Project at large is all about is is coming to understand and appreciate difference and to not be so put off by by people whose cultures we don't understand because sometimes it all all it really takes is just having a conversation and realizing we we probably have a lot of similarities and and we all we might like to go to go to a surf shop or go to the beach there are a lot of things that that really do bind us together and that is the beauty of the human family that we are trying to to illuminate with this project so it's apparent that that's something that's important to you and it's so wonderful um, to be able to talk with you and i intend to continue to follow your own community i've had the pleasure of watching some of your services and that's been a real blessing to me that's great and so continue the good work. These podcasts are a, a very good way to help people during this time when many find themselves isolated and disconnected, but there are ways to make those connections and to help one another. And this is very enriching. This is very good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sure we'll see each other at some point at a beach or at the fiesta or something. I'd love Most to. Most certainly. I hear that. I hear that you that you guys do at Our Lady of Guadalupe that you have a little setup during Fiesta, with uh, with with food and such. Is that right? A little setup. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's the only place to be at Fiesta. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually we we have the reputation of having the best food of all the fiestas. So if you haven't been here, you're missing out. (laughs) Molly's sold out first day. Every time. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually I actually wrote my thesis, my history thesis on the history of Santa Barbara, specifically the Fiesta. So I have like oh, a wow. vested interest wow. in Santa Barbara Fiesta and never miss it. Uh-huh. Like a very big deal to me. So I will definitely be checking that out. Well, look forward to seeing you guys here at uh, Our Lady Guadalupe come Fiesta time. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank All you right. so we'll much. see you then. All right. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for our conversation with Father Pedro Lopez. It was fascinating to hear how Father Pedro becomes part of his parishioner stories as he pastors them through the highs and lows of life. It was also nice to hear the voice of a Latino community leader, since that is such a large percentage of the Santa Barbara community. Next episode, you will be hearing a conversation with long-term Santa Barbara resident, Parfaf Turjaman, who is a board member and trustee of the Islamic Society of Santa Barbara and my wonderful mother. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us to keep up to date with our latest episode releases. And as always, feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com 